so it's always this push and pull across every apparatus actually the fig makes the apparatus safer the gymnasts do harder things and it's so it's this continual this balancing of risk and safety Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! They're all completely gassed! They've given it everything on the global bucket! Oh, yeah! Oh! Oh! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic championship. Ready? Hello, fans of Shuklastan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jairus, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? This is my two-week notice. <laughs> You're not quitting on us. So if anyone is planning to quit their jobs before the Olympics, <laughs> this is your deadline. We got two weeks. It's coming up way quicker than, you know, I just, I keep seeing posts on feeds and because feeds don't they don't want to show you necessarily the most recent thing they want to show you the most popular the algorithms getting a lot of like it's 20 days left and i get that like three or four days in a row and now i'm just totally lost well it's, it is how we're going to feel during tokyo because we'll be functioning somewhat on tokyo time mm -hmm. and somewhat at home time we will not know what day it is i mean we had that issue with pyeongchang we didn't know what day we were on we just sort of just kept watching the television hoping that the next thing we were supposed to watch would come on yes yeah. i was <laughs> right so we are actually going to release the show on tokyo time and that will mean that uh, we will follow the Tokyo day with the show and it will come out in the like the early afternoon Eastern time the same day. So when we start prime time, that's Tokyo morning, that will be on the next day's show, if that makes sense. You just tell me when to show up and people can just look at the website and see when it comes right, out. Right, pretty much. Pretty much that's it. But if you're in the U.S., look for it at, at the in the middle of the day. If you're in Europe, it'll probably be the end of your workday. And if you're in Asia and around Tokyo, it will come out when the Tokyo day is over, basically. That means we got to uh, use Renska Locks tips for time zone travel. We, we will have to, you know, we got two weeks, so we have to adjust our body clocks, you know, use your light box. I just don't think we're going to sleep for two weeks. I don't either. I don't Or we'll be just catching naps here and there. Oh, so. But all for a good cause. Exactly. Uh, follow up on one of the stories we talked about recently where uh, the Japan postal system is going to put golden mailboxes for Japanese athletes who win gold medals. Listener Don mentioned that London had done this too, and I totally forgot about it, but he sent a great story. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, and there are just uh, gold post boxes all over the area for people who won gold medals. Do they mark who the box is for? I believe you know? so. I believe okay, they good. have that. So that is very, very cool. And what else is cool? Today's guest. Very cool. We are talking with Georgia Servan. She is a sports scholar focused on governance, gender, and gymnastics. She's an honorary research fellow at the University of Western Australia and author of the new book, 
Degrees of Difficulty, How Women's Gymnastics Rose to Prominence and Fell from Grace. She's a former elite gymnast herself. She competed for New Zealand. One one of her big events internationally was the 2006 Commonwealth Games. We talked with Georgia about the evolution of women's gymnastics as a sport. Take a listen. Georgia, thank you so much for joining us. In your book, you go way back in gymnastics history, but we're going to start with where women's gymnastics started in the Olympics, which is in 1952. So what did women's gymnastics look like in the 50s and 60s? Well, just one thing is that women had competed or had done gymnastics in the Olympics before then, but it wasn't a competition. It was like an exhibition sport. So in 1952, that's when it starts as women's artistic gymnastics and with the four apparatus that we use now. And so back then it was mostly gymnasts in their 20s. Um, They were often former ballerinas and the sport it looked very different because of that. You know, they a lot of the movements were based on ballet. There was a lot of leaps and turns, and it was it was much slower and simpler. But that was really valued, and that was the point actually then. And even if you look at their outfits, um, you know, the leotards are cut lower in the leg and it, and wider in the shoulder, and it really emphasizes this kind of hourglass figure. And some of the gymnasts were even mothers as well, so very different to where the sport ended up some decades later. Yeah, I love watching some of the old videos with the hairdos. The hairdos, yeah, there's kind of beehive kind of, yeah. It would definitely have thrown off your center of gravity. Yeah, I don't, I genuinely don't understand how they did that. (laughs) (laughs) So the grumblings of change come in 1972, and then obviously the big change in 76 with Nadia Mm -hmm. Komenich from Romania. But we saw it in 72 with Olga Corbett from then the Soviet Union. So they sort of usher in this new era. And you talk a lot about that era in your book. So what was different? about them both physically and the kind of moves that they were doing? Well, there had been uh, some younger gymnasts performing this kind of acrobatic style actually in the 60s, but they weren't very well known outside of gymnastics and they didn't always do very well inside gymnastics. It wasn't particularly rewarded, but that style was really popularized in 1972 by Olga Corbett and the, the world kind of knew about it. And that public kind of support and popularity for this new style kind of meant there was no turning back um, for the Gymnastics Federation. And so what they, both Olga and Nadia really did is the style that is more, almost like more airborne. So a lot more acrobatics, way more time off the ground, it was a lot kind of quicker, dynamic, um, and risky as well, which is something that was discouraged for women because women are seen as fragile, basically. And so this was a, a very new direction. And Olga wasn't actually a child. She was she was 17 when she debuted this, this kind of style, but she kind of had a persona that was intentionally developed to be childlike so she wore a hair and pigtails she kind of skipped around on the floor she would smile to the audience she would cry and so it kind of portrayed this image of childishness of needing kind of adult uh, supervision or protection and this kind of fragility 
And then Nadia in 1976, she was a child. She was 14. And she she was a lot more serious in her style and her personality. But she also had routines that were made to look like she was a child. She mimicked child's play in some of her dance. But it was more of a kind of professional, strict athlete uh, kind of style. But with both of them getting success at the Olympics with those styles it made a change throughout the world because people then emulate what they did to achieve the success so people started working with younger athletes and they started trying to show these uh, more acrobatic and risky kinds of gymnastics. So I was a Nadia baby I was one of those kids who saw it and decided that that was that was what I wanted to do and it also fed into they were very approachable. You know, it wasn't like the the other Soviet or Eastern Bloc women who were very serious mm-hmm. and cold. And, and here's Olga Corbett crying and laughing and Nadia looking, you know, just so sweet and young and adorable. Mm-hmm. And you talk a lot, of, a lot in the book about this sort of diplomacy and reflection of what was happening at the times as well. Yeah, it's funny because both of them really appeal to Western audiences. It really broke down this perception of like the machine kind of athlete, this really stoic, unapproachable kind of person. But the Soviet Union actually did not like Olga Corbett because they kind of thought she was uncontrollable. <laughs> they they couldn't tell what she was going to do. Was she going to cry? Was she going to laugh? And so that wasn't great for them. But both countries, both Romania and the Soviet Union could see the appeal and the popularity that these two gymnasts were gaining in the West. And so they kind of, they sent their gymnasts on these, on gymnastics tours and throughout America, um, Great Britain and Australia. But the gymnastics tours were really about winning, winning hearts and minds and support for the Soviet Union in Romania. And they, they did get a lot of fans actually from it. You know, it's interesting because in the book you mentioned, Nadia got the first perfect 10, but literally right behind her was Nellie Kim. Yeah. So I kind of wonder if the timing had been different, how would we think today? And would Nadia still be the same darling? Because Nellie Kim's a pretty big powerhouse too. I mean, I was watching some of her tumbling passes on floor exercise today and it was it was impressive, especially when you think 1976. Yeah, a lot of the stuff she did was really groundbreaking and it's stuff like the stuff that Nellie Kim did is still considered quite difficult so I think that's a great question something I've thought about as well if Nellie Kim had gone first you know it all might be different but the other thing is really Nadia's dominance so she didn't she got seven perfect tens across I think two apparatus Nellie Kim also got more than one but I think the difference is that Komenich was just seen as so dominant and so difficult to beat across the board. Very similar to how we talk about Simone Biles today. Yeah, Nellie, Nellie Kim was not a darling. Yeah. She was a very classical Soviet gymnast in, yeah. in you know, Lamedal Torsheva and that whole group mm-hmm. who were on that team with Olga Corbett were not Olga Corbett. So when you say the Soviets didn't, because the rest of the team was not like Olga. Yeah, exactly. And I think 
maybe that's part of the appeal to Western audiences. Like Olga was doing something really different and surprising and what Nelly was doing is very consistent with what the Soviet Union has already done. Granted, going further and better, but it's not, um, I guess it didn't have that same appeal to Western audiences. No, definitely. It was, you know, I didn't learn about Nellie Kim or Torsheva until I was 10 years older. Yeah. You know, those names didn't mean anything until it didn't capture the imagination of the little girls who filled certainly American gyms and probably mm-hmm. a lot of Western gyms in the late 70s. Yeah, like both of, both Nadia and Olga, after their the kind of popularity boom in the 70s, gymnastics participation increased like threefold in America. Um, I think, I don't have the stats for the rest of the world, but I know anecdotally that it that's the reason a lot of people a lot of women were put into gymnastics and not just women girls it was really seen as a girl's sport after that and so it's a little bit self-perpetuating right like they created this image and then people parents were like oh this is a great place to put my child kind of thing so it very much became like you said, a girl's sport. And you have this great chart in the book about the average age of the Olympic gymnasts just plummeting uh, in in the 80s and not really climbing very much at all until sort of probably this year. They're going Mm -hmm. up a little bit. Jill and I were talking about this earlier. And they just seem to get smaller and smaller and younger and younger through the whole 80s and 90s. And they were doing wilder and wilder tricks yeah so they definitely got smaller and the gymnastics got harder and the fig that's the international body created minimum age rules because they could see this trend happening and they could see that people were starting to criticize them for it both the general public and the international olympic committee and so they had an international they had a minimum age of 14. They increased it to 15 in the 80s and 16 in the 90s. And when they did that last one in the 90s, the average age was actually over 16. So they kind of implemented this rule after a shift increasing the age had already begun. Um, And the minimum age is still 16 now. The other thing about the increasing difficulty is the, the equipment changes just minor changes, but, you know, the springs get a bit better, the mat, the mats get a bit softer, and it's just basic kind of technological advancements rather than any kind of specifically new pieces of equipment. So I want to I want to put a pin in that because I see Jill about to jump in with her equipment, but I want to ask a little bit about the age because the dropping of the ages kind of culminates in 2008 where the Chinese team is ultimately disqualified because they had gymnasts possibly as young as 12 competing and faking their ages. So what is FIG doing now to ensure that that's not happening? Well, in 2008, that Chinese team didn't get disqualified. There's no evidence that that team did falsify their ages, but there was a lot of media commentary about it based on how small those gymnasts look and Uh, I guess, the youth of their faces. However, the team, the 2000 team was disqualified. And that was because eight years after they competed, 
one of the gymnasts registered to be a judge at, at the Olympics and she had a different age then. And so that's when the pieces came together and they the officials could see these ages are not consistent. This person must have been a different age when they were competing. And the only way that FIG can really enforce the age rule is by looking at people's, uh, like their passports, those kind of ID documents that include people's ages. But it's the governments that create those documents. And so there has to be a kind of a system where those nations agree to play by the rules or they can falsify those documents. And I don't know how the FIG would would know if they're falsified until there starts to be inconsistency across those documents over time. Yeah, maybe it was the 2000 team because I remember one of the Chinese gymnasts was missing a tooth. Yeah. Like she had lost a tooth. And I remember looking at it going, I don't think she's 16. <laughs> so uh, another thing that we were talking about earlier is is the average age starting to rise? Because one of the things about the Tokyo Games is that the FIG said uh, when the Tokyo Games got uh, postponed, the FIG also kind of expanded the age limit so that if you would have been minimum age for the Paris Games, which is where we're in, we're technically in the Paris game quad, if you're thinking about it for federations, if you would have qualified for for this year in the minimum age, you could still go to Tokyo or try to qualify for Tokyo. But basically, people there are gymnasts, and and we saw a couple on the team from Russia who would not have qualified last year because they didn't meet the age minimum, but did qualify this year. But then we were looking at a lot of teams and noticed that gymnasts seem to be getting older today. D- does that have any th- correlation with? the types of tricks they're doing because stuff is really difficult now. Mm. So there has been an increase in the average age probably for the last decade at least. And it was over 20 at world championships for the first time, maybe around 2014. So it's it's been slowly creeping up. And now especially the, um, the American team, I think their average age is, I think it's 21. So that's a really big change, especially for the U.S., so this trend is, has been underway for a, a while. I'm not sure if it's related to the type of gymnastics and like the difficulty of the skills that people are doing. I think it's potentially related to a couple of innovations that FIG made over a decade ago that allowed gymnasts to specialize so they can do one apparatus or you know two or three, but they, before that you had to do four. So that means you can train a little bit less, you know, you can focus your energy onto one thing and the demand is a bit lighter because of that. I think also one of the biggest factors is actually there's been a really great role model in gymnastics, Oksana Chusevitina, who has been to, she, she went to her first Olympics in 1992 and she's still going. And I think a lot of people have watched what she's done and realized that you don't have to stop after you're 16. And in fact, you can get better. And I know she's been an inspiration to a lot of people. And as those people have continued their careers, they've become the inspiration as well. And so now there's this much bigger pool of athletes who are older and they're all proving it. And 
and uh, one at the moment that everyone loves is Chelsea Memel. And she didn't make the American team, unfortunately, but she she was a 2008 Olympian and she's had two kids. And in the last, I think, two years, she's been documenting her return to gymnastics on Instagram. And it's been really amazing to watch. And it, I think it's, again, inspired a lot of former gymnasts to wonder if they too could actually do it. So with the age going up, one of the things that we talk a lot about, unfortunately, with gymnastics is all the abuse scandals and not just the sexual abuse and the physical abuse, but kind of training abuse that these girls are sort of trained into the ground. So is there a change coming with that increase in age of training methods? Yeah. So I was part of the study that I did with um, scholars from Sweden and Brazil and Canada. And we talked to older gymnasts and asked how their training had changed to account for the fact they were older. And across the board, they said they had a lot more control over what they were doing. So when they were younger, it was a really authoritarian relationship with the coach. It was do what you're told, don't question me, all the rest of it. And as the gymnasts got older, they just they wouldn't stand for that. They would push back and say, no, I'm not doing that. I don't like my, my body is too sore. I am too tired and that is too dangerous. I'm not doing it. And the gymnasts that were able to continue, their coaches really had to kind of take a step back and rethink how they were coaching. And the coaches that could move towards more of a partnership instead of that authoritarian method, those were the ones who were able to sustain the careers of their gymnasts. And that was essentially the key point that makes it work. And knowing that now, I think there's scope for that kind of more partnership way of coaching to be applied to younger gymnasts as well. But gymnasts are really taught when they're young to not ask questions, to be docile and passive and to listen. And yeah, and I think they they need to be taught how to feel their bodies and know what they need, not just to listen kind of blindly and follow, yeah, follow instructions blindly. So going back to, you know, that time in the seventies and the eighties, where you have the huge success of Eastern European gymnasts, obviously, especially Soviets and Romanians, and then the Carolis come to America and kind of bring that style of coaching that you were just talking about. And then American gymnastics community kind of accepted that. So what what about either gymnastics or the coaching? Did we all accept that the coach could just kind of control your life as as to these very young girls? Well, it wasn't just the Carolis because this is around the world and it's the coaching was like that before the fall of the Soviet Union as well. So before a lot of these Eastern Bloc coaches moved everywhere. And it's, I think it's to do with both the age of athletes and the gender. So one of the kind of important things about femininity has historically been that women are passive and docile and they do what they're told, they, you don't be difficult, you don't 
ask questions and often don't take a leadership position, right? You, you're often subordinate or supposed to be subordinate to men or other authorities. And the reason that is exacerbated in gymnastics is because the, the point of gymnastics of women's gymnastics is to showcase femininity. So these aren't just females in sport, they're females who are trying to be feminine in sport. And so they're encouraged to have these behaviors of being subordinate and following this authoritarian model. And then exacerbating that is the fact that they're children and children also get those messages of, you know, don't ask questions, adults know better. And so there's a lot of trust put in the coach and a lot of autonomy taken away from the female child gymnast. And I think because of those two factors, it's kind of been seen as appropriate in gymnastics as it's quite paternalistic. Um, the adults, the coaches know better, and you just have to trust that this is how it's done. So I promised Jill we would go back to equipment because the one thing that Jill always talks about is the bars. Mm-hmm. You know, in the old days, you would beat the bar. It was close enough that if your hands are on the high bar, you could whip your your hips onto the low bar. And now they just keep getting further and further and further apart. Yeah, when did that start happening, specifically with bars? And then you talked a little bit about the the vault has changed too. Mm-hmm. And I I do notice that as well. But well, that's a kind of a separate thing. But mm-hmm. more so on, on bars, why? when did they start getting farther apart and why? Okay, so actually it's always been happening. So in the, in the very first Olympics that women were competing in, they were using the men's parallel bars with one bar up, one bar down. And so they would just stand on the bottom one and hold the top one as like a balance. And it was essentially, that was the apparatus. It was like a balancing kind of posing thing. And they got a little bit further apart and people started to do, you know, the swing down and hit your hips and bounce back up kind of thing and spin like around the bars. And then in the 60s, there was an American gymnast actually who trained with, I think she trained with a male coach. And so she was kind of practicing like a the style the men use on the high bar, but she applied that to the parallel bars, to the uneven bars. So she started doing more swinging, more like she would like release the bar and twist and catch and that kind of thing. And she, I mean, it, it wasn't particularly celebrated or rewarded in gymnastics, but it was a, it was a start. It kind of planted the seed. And I guess the the hip kind of beating stuff and the those kind of half swings kept on happening and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And on in the men's high bar, they started like releasing the bar and catching it again. And women saw that, started applying it to their their bars, required it to the bars to get further away so that they could gain enough momentum to do those things. So that was really um, maybe around the 80s and that that started happening. And then in the 90s, they got further apart to allow even bigger circles around the bar to get more airtime off the bar and recatch it. And that evolution has kind of, so it's kind of continued since the beginning of the sport. I think the distance now is, similar to what it was a decade or two ago. So I think, 
I'm not sure if it would continue to change that much from now. Yeah. For the vault, in 2001, they they changed the vaulting horse. So before it was called a vaulting horse because it was modeled off a, a literal horse. So it's quite like narrow and it, it was around, for women, it was around like 125 centimeters off the ground. And there were some really serious injuries. At least two people were paralyzed from doing that, that vault. And so it took about at least a decade actually, but the international governing body had been developing a new apparatus that they thought would be safer with more uh, like safety padding, a bigger surface area. So there was less risk, less risk that people would miss their hands or slip off the vault. And they also wanted something that was going to be easier to, for both men and women to use because before you had to move the horse to, because the men would use it in a different direction to women. And these are really heavy pieces of equipment and it's just quite impractical. So the new horse or the table is what they call it, that they invented in 2001 is is effectively unisex. They just use different heights and it's softer. It's got a bigger surface area and it's therefore safer. But because of all those things, because it's safer safer and a little bit kind of springier, gymnasts then do harder stuff on it. So it's always this push and pull across every apparatus, actually. The FIG makes the apparatus safer, the gymnasts do harder things. And it, so it's this continual, this balancing of risk and safety. And then just more generally, like on the floor, they added springs in, I think, the 70s. And just technological advancements, those springs have gotten springier and the mats have gotten softer. And so that's why we see much harder tumbling now than we used to on beam it used to be like sharp a piece of wood and it was just sharp wooden corners and that's it and they then they put like leather around the outside so you wouldn't get scraped if you fell and then they put padding underneath the leather and it became a little bit bouncier and so again it's just increasing safety increasing risk (laughs) does the floor really sound as loud as it does on TV, or they it really does, or because I figured they're miking it too. Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like it does sound that loud, but it's kind of more emphasized on TV because when you're in a gym, there's like probably a hundred people in there. Everyone's doing everything at once, moving mats. Like the mats crash down when you move when you flip them and stuff. And so there's so much happening you don't – I feel like you don't notice it as, as much as you do in a competition. Speaking of harder and harder tricks, gymnastics is unique in that tricks are named after the first person to do them in a world competition because mm. you don't see that in, like, diving, which also could potentially have similar moves or in, in mm. some of the aerial snow sports. But why did that come about and how does that continue to develop? It's a really good question. So some of the more basic things like handstand, cartwheel, all those foundational things, there's no way that those are ever going to be named after the first performer. But I think I'm, I'm guessing here, I'm hypothesizing, but I think it's because some elements, some skills you can't describe. So for example, 
front flip, you can describe double front flip, you can describe that as well. But on bar, when someone does, for example, they swing up and let go and then change the way they're moving and come back down on the other side and catch it. Like you can't describe that as like, it's not really a flip, but it's, it's kind of a reverse. And so there's not really existing language for it. And so it becomes named after that person. And then after that, you can describe it. So I was, what I was trying to describe then was a catch if, and then you could call it a pike catch if, if you do it with your legs together instead of straddled. But because that precedent exists of naming stuff after people, well, if you do a different variation of that, you want to get you, you want the credit for it. You want to be immortalized in the rule book of the sport. So you apply to have your name put on it. And I know for a lot of people, that's a goal in and of itself. You, you might not be able to get a gold medal, but you can get your name in that book and everyone will say your name, whoever does that skill in their life. And that's pretty cool. It is very cool. Uh, and it also helps the rest of us learn how to speak Russian. Yeah, exactly. It may, it does make it really hard to come into the sport as a spectator because, you know, the commentators are describing what the gymnast is doing and they're basically speaking another language. And, and it takes a while to, to catch on to what they're saying. But then once you know, yeah, it's it's really cool. <laughs> okay, so that that's a good lead into code of points discussion. Mm-hmm. So it used to be based out of 10. Mm-hmm. And now we have this, this move has a particular point, it ultimately could be limitless as to what the the amount of points. So one, why was that change made? And how does that change affect the spectator and how we're, we're kind of watching the sport? So that change was made, um, the change had been mooted for a, quite a long time, actually, since maybe the early 90s as a way of striking the balance between difficulty and execution in the sport, which is how hard what you're doing is versus how well you do it. Because there had been just a feeling that the that was had been a bit off. And they also thought, some officials also thought that there was a problem and that a, gr- a great performer was would kind of hit the ceiling of perfect 10 and a, and a good performer could be getting a 9.9 and the difference between those two performances is not really just one tenth but they got like stuck within that perfect 10 system but a lot of the gymnastics world did not want a change like that that was it's crazy it's way too out there and so nothing really happened with it and then there was a number of judging scandals particularly at the 2004 olympics in the men's competition and the IOC was putting pressure on the FIG to basically clean up their act. They were saying, you know, this sport is not fair and it's because it's not fair, it's it's not very credible and you need to sort yourselves out. So they did very quickly. They had this, this new version that they had been in the background since the 1990s and they just pulled it back out of the archive and put it in as the new system. And so the new system, it separates difficulty and execution. And the way it does that is there's, there's two scores. So your execution, you have deductions from 10 points and they're like one tenth for a small step on your landing to a whole point for a fall and various deductions in between. And then the other score is your difficulty score and your 
top 10 skills are added up because each skill has a difficulty rating from about one tenth to nine tenths. So they add that all up and that's basically how you get your difficulty score. And then you add the two components together. And that's why you end up with like a, a score of 15. Often the execution score would be somewhere around eight. And often the difficulty score would be somewhere around, I don't know, six, seven. So every quad, they revamp the code of points. Yes. Yes. Okay. So based on kind of what what happened last time around, we're going to make some changes. What do you see as being favored right now in the code of points? Hmm. I don't know if I can, if I can comment about what I see as being favored. I can say more generally though, that if the FIG sees, sees a prevalence of a lot of a certain skill, for example, wolf turns, actually gymnastics fans would know about that, wolf turns. So it's like a pirouette, but when you're kind of in like a squat position, too many people are doing those. And so the FIG would say, they're not going to say you can't do it, but they're going to say, instead of getting, you know, I know five tenths for that, you're only going to get one because it's a way of disincentivizing it, basically. Maybe a decade ago, you used to be able to when you land your tumbles, you'd do like a step into a lunge afterwards. And the FIG said, we don't want that anymore. And so that's now, that became a deduction. So they can add new deductions in and they can also reevaluate the level of difficulty or the reward they'll give you for certain skills. And that's how they shape what the sport looks like and where it's going. But it's very reactionary. It's based on what they've seen rather than, oh, it is also what they anticipate actually, but it's easier to be, uh, yeah, reactionary. <laughs> I may be wrong on this because I'm going off of memory. Isn't the new code of points for that would end in 2024? That is out now, correct? And it will be starting next year? Yeah, so the codes, are, they come into force after the Olympics. Um, and we didn't have the Olympics. So the new code was written and ready to go, but... As, as far as I understand it, we're competing under the old code, the code that was meant to finish in 2020 because it's a bit unfair to change the rules now. I might be wrong, but I, I, that's what I understand is happening. And the new code will kick in after the Olympics for other competitions. Right. So I think my, my question kind of is, like, don't they sometimes see where, what, the, what happens at the Olympics and kind of use that to help finalize their, the, the new code? Yeah. Or do they not have enough time for that? Because I, I know how rules take long, how long it takes to get rules done. I understand that that is what they do. So they'll have the draft ready to go. It's a huge document, like hundreds of pages. And so they will have drafted that and have the general idea of where they're going and what they want to do. But I think they can make some amendments after the Olympics. I don't know if that'll be the case this year, but I think that's usually how it works. Yeah, because I was very curious on like how if something, uh, well, we, we could talk about Simone and the new vault, which mm. what is it, Yurichenko? Yeah. Double, you're, okay. You can get uh, <laughs> okay, just uh, memory. But, uh, <laughs> you know, her, if she throws down that new vault and they're like, it, it seems like the FIG is kind of like, whoa, we don't know about this one. Yeah, well, I, I think the vault is a bit different than the beam dismount, which there was a bit of a drama that that was really undervalued. And they made that case by looking at the value on floor and then comparing 
to the value on beam and it's a bit inconsistent. Whereas the vault, there's not the same kind of direct comparison that can be made. Like that can't be done. Something similar can't be done on any of the other apparatus. So it's, uh, there's not really a benchmark to measure against except for the men's vault. The men do that vault. And if you look at the difference between the men's value for other vaults and then how it's valued on the women's vault, the Eugenia double pike's pretty similar. Like there's a similar difference in the men's and women's values. So it's it seems to be consistent actually, but we already had this narrative of um, Simone gets penalized for her difficulty. And so it kind of fit quite neatly into that without there really being the same kind of evidence to support that narrative. Okay, so let's let's talk about Simone because obviously she's the biggest star in the sport, arguably yeah. going to be the biggest star in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And she is doing things that have never been done before mm-hmm. and a level of difficulty we've never seen. And is that good for the sport of women's gymnastics as a whole? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. She's been amazing for women's gymnastics because she's really pushing the envelope of not just what can be done, but what could even be imagined. And she's a real leader in the sport, not just with her gymnastics, but she has taken public opinions on a lot of issues. And I think that's a kind of leadership that not all athletes have. You know, it's a really important platform that they're given and not everyone uses it. And particularly when gymnastics has been in crisis for the last few years with all of the abuse, she's emerged as a great leader for the sport. So watch her for her gymnastics, watch her for what she says. She's been incredible for the sport. And on top of all of that, there's also an issue of representation. She's been doing wonders for kind of showing that this is not just a sport for white girls. And other people have shown that before her, but she's still part of that that journey. And I think, you know, that's really important. Do you see, because it's interesting, the roots of gymnastics are European kind of military or femininity, and that bias seems to play out, or at least we in America hear that narrative because we end up having a lot of uh, some of the gymnasts of color who have broken that barrier, but there still seems to be an underlying whiteness to the sport or to the governance of the sport. Do do you see that changing much? Yeah. Or am I being accurate? You're being accurate, I think. It's hard to say if it's changing much. I think we, we see the change in non-elite gymnastics so if you look at collegiate gymnastics for example they're doing kind of different styles of dance and that kind of thing and it it's a bit more open because if you think about it like people have been doing flips and dancing in lots of cultures around the world for hundreds of years and none of those well not all of those things are called gymnastics gymnastics is this narrow thing where you are expected to do balletic type movements, tumbling that meets these kind of expectations. I mean, when was the last time you saw a female gymnast doing dancing to hip hop at the Olympics? You know, and that's just a simple way of saying, you know, the music choices, the hairstyles, all of that is, it's quite white. And 
even though there's non-white gymnasts, they often are being asked to conform to those white expectations. Whereas, yeah, if you look at, for, I'm just thinking about the UCLA women's gymnastics team and, you know, earlier this year they had a routine, they, they were calling it Black Excellence. I think it was Nia Dennis and that kind of thing, you know, you listen to the music choices, look at the dance moves, they're all referencing Black culture and it's those kinds of cultural references that are still haven't really made their way into the elite sport which you know i'm i'm hoping it does change because as much as i enjoy eastern european folk music i am really tired of watching people do floor exercises to that that look just like a fish out of water yeah it would be be so much more interesting if we could if it was more diverse and I, i hope it's going in that way I guess the other thing is as well is historically the sport was governed by Europeans. Uh, anyone could be on the governance boards, but it just it was Europeans. Since the 80s, it started to diversify a little bit geographically. So that's when the first Australian made it onto the executive board. But I mean, Australian is that's still they still conform to white culture. Um, so again, it's diversifying, but is it going beyond those European values? Not sure yet, but hopefully. And who else besides Simone are you excited to see this time mm-hmm. around? Well, the whole American team is going to be really interesting. Look out for Sunisa Lee's bars. Everything she does, but her bars in particular are just uh, stunning. It'll, I know this might be controversial for gymnastics fans, but Michaela Skinner, like it's going to be interesting to see how she goes. She's going to be giving everyone a run for their money as a bit of an, as much as an American can be an underdog. She's going to fill that role. <laughs> Team China will be interesting. They're looking a lot different than they've looked historically. So, and they're always a strong team. So, yeah. And also Team Great Britain, some newcomers on that team. Don't know what's going to happen. It'll be interesting to see. What about the Russian team? Or I'm sorry, the Russian Olympic team, team from Russia, (laughs) whatever we have to call them this time around. Because, you know, the dominance kind of faded after the the breakup of the Soviet Union. But, you know, where do they stand in the world today? Mm. They're still highly competitive. And, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be up there. But, I find it hard to comment on them because I guess what they're doing is the more traditional stuff. And I don't know that that could be a great move or that could not work out so well. So it's, it's hard to say, I think. Um, I think they're one of the younger teams now. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. What's happened to Romania? We know we started talking with Nadia and now Romania just is not even on anyone's radar anymore. There's, it's just not there. Yeah. So they didn't qualify a team. I think some of the analysis I've heard from people in Romania is that, you know, it used to be gymnastics used to be this really important nationalist kind of pursuit and, a real opportunity for people to lift themselves out of poverty. And it was quite like a privileged life. You get to go to the school, you get to have the best training, all the rest of it. And as the country has developed, the sacrifice hasn't been seen as worth it for a lot of people. So there's been less interest 
from families and putting their children into gymnastics. I wonder if there's been underfunding of the national system as well. And I think Romania kept going until the uh, like mid-2010s. And so we didn't really see the consequences of that underfunding and that of that change in kind of social dynamics until quite suddenly they ran out of gymnasts. And so they've still got excellent gymnasts, but they don't have as, as many as struggle to put together a team. And they've just, yeah, kind of gone away from the limelight, which is really sad for them. It's been a really important sport for their country. Thank you so much, Georgia. We are really excited that you were able to come on the show. Thank you so much, Georgia. You can learn more about Georgia's work at georgiaservin.com, and you can buy her book and books by all of our featured authors from the show through our bookshop.org site. We earn a commission from purchases, and that goes to offsetting the costs of producing this show. Go to bookshop.org slash shop slash flamealivepod to get your copy. So I want to make one correction, and Georgia did correct me, and I just wanted to make sure that that was clear, that it was the 2000 Chinese women's team that was stripped of their medal. Oh, right, right, right. Because of an age violation, though the 2008 team was subject to an official FIG investigation. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up. Welcome to Shukflistan. Yes, it is time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests who have been on the show. First up, Tom Scott, our karate athlete, is going to Tokyo. You know why? I I literally started jumping up and down, and then I found out why, and I was not so happy. That is right. The World Karate Federation sanctioned the top competitor in his bracket, Irani's Baman Asgari, uh, Gonche, I believe is how it pronou- is pronounced. He had a violation because of a prohibitive use of a prohibitive sub- substance, and he is suspended from all international competitions for a 12-month period, which means he had to uh, revoke his place at the Olympic Games, and Tom was next in line, so Tom gets to go instead. The world is balanced again. Right. We are very excited for you, Tom. Best of luck. We will be watching. Ginny Fuchs and the USA boxing team are in Miyazaki for pre-Olympics training. Texas Monthly teamed with June 3rd Films to tell stories of four Texans who are going to Tokyo. And Ginny's story is the first in the series. And we will have a link to see that. And it's really good. It's like a seven-minute short film. And it's really interesting because it shows just how much the OCD affects her and, and how she is able to channel her energies and thoughts when she's in the boxing ring. And we talked with her a lot about OCD, so take a listen back to our chat with her. We got our 2022-2023 Team USA calendar in the mail, and you know who's uh, one of the April athletes? Samantha Schultz, our modern pentathlete. (laughs) So they give these calendars out to uh, people who donate. So basically, if you probably got one if you're on their email list and you also got a, a... donation solicitation for that but you might be able still to still get one now it was funny because uh i put a picture on twitter and tagged her and she did not know she was in the calendar well okay she should have been in may because may is the fifth month oh right and it's five sports and modern yeah. but 
bobsledder Josh Williamson was featured on Sliding on Ice, Getting to Know a Slider column. And uh, finally, Lauren Gibbs, uh, one of our other bobsledders, is auctioning off an NFT artistic rendering of herself by the artist Bourbet. The auction goes live on July 12th, and you can find out more at Lauren's GoFundMe page. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Of course, lots of Tokyo 2020 news. COVID is not doing well in Japan. The numbers keep going up. They have hit levels they haven't seen since May. So we're getting in the 900s of daily cases. So that's not great. Uh, Both Inside the Games and the Kyoto News said that the spectator cap will likely be lowered to 5,000. The opening ceremonies could just be in front of VIPs. Fans may be banned after 9 p.m. The torch relay was taken off public roads. Organizers wanted fans to stay away from the marathon and the race walks that are in Sapporo. But this was great because World Athletics was, quote unquote, surprised by this decision, which it describes as seemingly inconsistent with plans to allow spectators in the venues. (laughs) That made me laugh. Oh, that's sort of an addendum to the Mara novella. Right. Yeah, right. I know it just goes along that 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 all wraps together. So um, the government, the Asahi Shimbun says the government may issue another state of emergency for Tokyo through August 22, which is not great news. Another athlete arrived in the country with COVID. This was this time it's a Serbian rower. But it was also pointed out that more than 500 participants who are going to be at the Tokyo uh, Olympics arrived on July 1st and no COVID cases were reported. So I think there's a little bit of one COVID case shows up and that's the only news we can have versus a lot of people are starting to arrive and we're doing okay. Uh, the Because of all of this uncertainty about how many uh, spectators they'll have, the ticket lottery results got pushed back again to July 10th. So Roy Tomizawa, we are still hoping for you to get a couple of tickets out of this. And that's kind of where we stand with COVID. It's it's just kind of a wait and see, keep hoping that measures work. Tokyoites, please do your part. The Kyoto News reported that the Athletes Village had a pre-opening this week, mainly for officials of team delegations who have to make preparations to welcome the athletes and support them. So people are starting to arrive in the village to make things ready. Um, speaking of athletes arriving, there's a, a outlet called Newswire that said how some athletes in uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands were having trouble, get, not trouble, but their journey to Tokyo is a lot longer than they thought. So Sri Lankans normally would go through Singapore and then up to Tokyo, but Singapore is banned Sri Lankans from even transferring in the airport. So instead, they have to go through Qatar. And yeah, so that's the wrong direction. Yeah, exactly. So it's a long, long journey for those athletes. And the Fijian team, they're going to Tokyo on a cargo plane. Well, given that Ben Ryan was telling us a story how they had to ride coach, they might actually be more comfortable in cargo. Those are some big guys on that rugby team. That is exactly what I thought. (laughs) They probably are like, leg room. We've got all the leg room in the world. (laughs) 
you know, no pillows, no, you know, the no air conditioning, but we have leg room. <laughs> the IOC also made a decision to make team or to give team sports more roster flexibility. So uh, in a lot of sports like football, handball, hockey, rugby and water polo, if they ever had to use an alternate, it was a permanent replacement. But now they have flexibility to move alternates in and out. And I think that's just because of the situation. We don't know what will happen. So teams have been given a little bit more flexibility there. And we'll close up with bad news because why not? Kester Semenya is not going to be able to compete at Tokyo this year. She had been champion for, at Rio in the 800 meters. Then the World Athletics Association put on a whole bunch of measures saying that women could have women in the specific races that she ran could only have so much testosterone in their body. She could she had the option to take medicine to bring down that level of testosterone, but she did not want to because who knows what that would do to your body, too. And so she tried to qualify for Tokyo in the 5,000 meters because that was a distance that she would be legally allowed to, legally in the world athletics sense of the word, allowed to compete in. But she did not make qualifying Tokyo times for that. And she is not the only runner who's been hit with this high natural testosterone ban. I know there were two other Namibian runners that have also been banned because of their high natural testosterone. So this battle is nowhere near over. Unfortunately, we're going to be talking about this in World Athletics for a long time. Right. And Semenya said that she'll still compete. The Olympics aren't the end-all be-all for her. Uh, she likes having fun. She likes running because it's a lot of fun for her. So she just wants to be on the track for a long time. And that's what she's going to keep working on. Then uh, if you're in the U.S., you probably are interested in the Shakari Richardson story. Uh, Shakari pretty much blew away the field in the 100-meter dash and is one of the fastest women in the world won the event and then uh, tested positive for marijuana use. And At the that, U.S. Olympic trials. Yes. And that has unleashed a storm of controversy. I, I will say that uh, Shakari, uh, because people were, were saying, A, why is marijuana banned in the first place? But the World Anti-Doping Agency allows a little bit of THC in your system. So like you could take CBD oil and stuff. But basically it was kind of pretty much Shakari used marijuana on the day of competition. And you can debate about marijuana and what it can do for you. It probably depends on the strain and how it interacts with your body. So it could very well have been a performing enhancing experience for her. We don't know for sure, but it, it was above the WADA limit. So there was a little window of hope because she got a one-month suspension, and that suspension would end before the relay started in Tokyo, but USA Track and Field has decided not to include it, her on the roster. Do you have thoughts? Of course I have thoughts. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Okay, so here are my thoughts. First of all, Shikari Richardson has been handling this situation with a lot of grace oh, yes. and a lot of class. Yes. And I want to say, good on you. You're handling it much better than a lot of other people who are speaking for you. Mm -hmm. Second, we can debate 
all we want whether pot should be banned or not banned. You know, supporters of pot use go on and on about how it's great for pain relief, it is great for anxiety, and it it's this miracle drug. And if it is, then it affects your body in competition. There are many, 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 many drugs that are legal that are still banned. There are many pain medications that are banned. Even though they are legal, they are prescription medications. There are asthma medications that are banned. So legality is not an argument for whether a drug should be on the banned list or not. The argument is, does it affect their performance? And clearly, pot can affect your performance. Whether it should be on or off that list is a separate argument. So Shikari broke the rules. End of discussion. If you want to talk, take this discussion to change the rules, separate argument. She broke the rules. She took the punishment. And I think everybody needs to remember that just because it's legal in such and such state, never mind doesn't make it legal around the world. Mm-hmm. These are international rules. And that's not the deciding factor. Very well said. I think I do feel I've, I feel a lot of empathy for Shakari because you're absolutely right. She handled this with such grace and has been very open about it and and basically said, I'm human. And she's young. She's 21. We're a little past 21, but we know enough that when you're that age and well, even now people make some stupid mistakes sometimes. And she made a mistake and just happened to make it on a stage that where she has a lot of visibility. So I think she's handled it as well as she can. I bet she's, I mean, obviously extremely disappointed, but has been very poised and very graceful about the whole situation. She's not done, of course, you know, because as every athlete who goes through a suspension, you're allowed to come back unless you're permanently banned. So she'll be back. And she'll, she said she'll, She's ready, getting ready for the world championships next year, which are going to be in the United States. So same track as the trials. Exactly. Paris is only three years away. She could have a very long career ahead of her and a very successful one, which I hope because she's got so much talent. And on the flip side, the USATF screwed up by not putting her on the relays. Do you think? I mean, yes, I do, because she did not fight this ban. You know, she Mm -hmm. said, I screwed up. She put her hand up and said, yep, I screwed up. I take my punishment. You've already taken away her ability to be named the fastest woman on earth. Let's reward athletes who stand up, take responsibility, and act with such grace and class. And don't try and and undermine the doping system. Hmm, because my... my thought is that USATF made the decision kind of on a technicality because if she doped during the, if, if relays were chosen based on performance at the trials and your performance at the trials is disqualified, does that result count? So how do we choose? Do we choose somebody who got themselves disqualified for the trials and make that sort of statement? Or do we choose the talent and make that sort of statement? So it's, it's a good it's, it's, I think it was a very hard decision to make. I was, I was very surprised that they didn't take her. The, re- the reason I say they made a mistake is because there's been a lot of discussion lately. Rel- they've, they've lumped together the Shikari Richardson story, the 
Castor Semenya and the other distance running, lowering, you know, forcing them to lower their testosterone, the banning of the new swim caps that have been designed oh, for bro. natural hair. Oh, so we lumped all this. We lumped all this together as the IOC is racist, mm-hmm. and the USATF could have nipped that story in the bud by naming her to the relays and taken that element off the table and saying, yes, she broke a rule. Yes, we recognize she made a mistake and we're not going to overly punish her for that mistake. Hmm. So let's pull that out. So at least you turn it around. But now people who generally are not terribly Olympic fans are lumping all these things together to create a racist narrative. Hmm. And the, and that, Simone Biles is being punished for being too good. They've thrown that in the mix. And that Gwendolyn Berry is being punished for her podium protest at the trials. So let's make everything that happens to any African-American or uh, black athlete around the world evidence that the IOC is racist. Hmm. So the USTF kind of, USATF kind of missed a chance Mm. to pull the plug on that. Yeah. And let me just say, it's not like the IOC doesn't have a history of racism. Very true. Very, very true. So come on, you're you're shooting yourself in the foot with a lot of these decisions that whether they are racist or not, <laughs> clearly some of them are. But even when they're not, they look it. And mm-hmm. that's just dumb. Dumb. Right. And if so we learn dumb. Do you got anything happy to go out of? It is two weeks to Tokyo. Excellent. And I am ready. Excellent. I like that. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Let us know what you think about the state of women's gymnastics. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta. And keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Join us next time for our interview with shooter Tim Sherry. As we go out to music by Mercury Sunset, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. I was a Nadia baby.